Um, I hope you'll forgive me for giving a rather informal presentation today. Um, I'm touching on quite a few different areas of work that I've engaged in over the last few years. So perhaps I'll begin by just saying simply a little bit more about myself. I moved to Myanmar at the end of 2008 and I was working in Yangon for the British Council for three years um, as a teacher trainer. I was a teacher before that time. Um, I worked with the British Council as a teacher trainer and in the governance department uh, working with civil society activists um, and including, in fact, John May Wing-in at that time <laughs> and, um, and, and others as well. And um, I was involved in uh, organizing women's empowerment training courses. Those experiences really informed my later work and I'll come back towards the end of my presentation around this problematic, but also you know, the opportunities involved in this sort of the international and local crossover that we get, especially in fields of women's empowerment training and areas like that. So I'll come back to that, but just so you know, it's sort of informed by my own implication in these processes as well. Um, since that time, I've worked as a researcher. Um, I, as Matthew said, recently completed my PhD at the University of Amsterdam, but I've also been a lecturer at the university for the last few years. Um, I've worked in Myanmar as a researcher on projects including with UNICEF, um, focusing on particularly on education and in peace building. So I've got these three areas of my work that I particularly focus on, um, education and conflict and social justice issues, education um, for minorities, um, for disabilities, and for women as well, um, and then also sort of activist movements and more community-led education. So in this presentation, I'm attempting to sort of bring those three areas of work together. Um, I'll just do this because I've only got a couple of slides. So firstly, I just wanted to outline um, the area of gender and education and the ways in which education is implicated in constructing notions of citizenship. Now this is true for men and women and across different um, intersectional identities as well. My work's particularly focused on constructing notions of female citizenship, but, but as I say, these apply more broadly um, as well. And I think we've already had today a great introduction to some of the really key issues in the way that education plays a really important role in gender dynamics in the context of Myanmar. Um, one, of, one of the areas that's drawn a lot of attention um, in Myanmar, but also in, in the context of education and gender more broadly, um, both in our own contexts in the West as well as in other developing contexts as well, is the issue of curriculum. And the images that you see there are actually taken from a report produced by the Gender Equality Network, um, who I'm a, a member of and a technical results person for. Um, so there is already a bit of information out there on the ways in which curriculum can be held responsible for presenting certain images of what it means to be a Myanmar woman, and what it means to be a Myanmar man. man. These are highly connected with religion as well, as again, I think we've already had a great introduction to, um, around the, the expected roles, duties, responsibilities of men and women in society. But because that work exists, I want to talk a little bit less about that, and more about some of the other ways in which these gender hierarchies creep into the classroom. And this is particularly important at the moment because of the education reform process, which is ongoing and as, as our colleague rightly pointed out, there is, um, there's a lot that we're talking about at the moment that is a little bit backwards looking because there has been attempts at education reform which haven't perhaps enacted themselves in a way for us to be able to speak about them, but they are there. Um, so this is likely to change. There are new curriculums coming in 
However, in my work with the education reforms and with the NESP, um, the new draft um, sector plan, some of these issues have been less addressed, which leads me to highlight them a little bit more closely and to, to want a little bit more attention directed towards these issues. And these are really some of the structural impacts um, and some of the violence as well, the structural violence that occurs within classrooms that can go a little bit unseen. So I put this image here of um, weaving and constructing a fabric. Because in a lot of my research, I've built on Deleuzean notions of striation. And by striation, I mean these, these lines, these structures that are quite fixed. And the image of creating a fabric on a loom works quite well for imagining those lines that come in. Schools are great places, and especially formal state schools supported by the government, are great places to enact these striations. You start at a young age and you move through classes. Classes are dele delineated by age, um, by subject area. So it's a very organized, controlled environment. And it creates a hierarchy. There's a huge amount of hierarchy within the schools. There's nothing wrong with that. Hierarchy in itself doesn't have to be an unequal hierarchy. And certainly in the context of a school, it is natural that we do progress through ages and through experiences and through learning. Assessment, again, being a key marker of these kinds of transitions through the hierarchies. But what we can see and what we do see in, in many contexts, many schools in Myanmar, is the construction of a deeply unequal and oppressive fabric through this. And that's where the problems arise. So when we're attempting to create new dynamics, which is my next slide, um, it's really around undoing some of these uh, lines that have been woven into the fabric, which has in itself created an oppressive structure. But it can be, although it takes a huge amount of work, reworked. So some of these um, slightly more hidden areas I wanted to draw attention to um, are, and I fact I've missed one off here, this idea of materiality and shaming. So Tata um, expertly presented this idea of um, the woman's body as being inferior. And of course, not only in a home environment, but also in a school, we see these kinds of reproductions emerging as well. Um, positionality um, within a classroom becomes immensely important and is associated with women's bodies and the um, association of women's bodies with a form of contamination. So the possibility that women contain in their bodies and in materials associated with their bodies, that they can diminish a man's power, which leads on to this shaming, this innate sense of shaming that women can themselves and girls can themselves be contaminating to a more powerful man. We see these ideas coming into classrooms as well as into community spaces and into homes through actions of teachers, through positioning in classrooms, whereby a, a female student might be told off if she was sitting on the right-hand side of a male student, they might be directed to a different, um, a different area of the classroom in order to not diminish a boy's power, through the roles that, and, and again, this is often um, variable by classrooms. It depends a lot on the teachers, depends a lot on the environment, so I don't want to sort of over-assume um, this to be the case in, in all schools. But these are some of the things that, were, that I witnessed and, and was reported to me by, by female students and male students as well, as well as teachers. Um, so yeah, the positioning within classrooms, also the um, forms of learning that girls are able to participate in. Sports, amongst all the female students that I talked to, was one of the most commonly identified things that they missed. So girls were often excluded from playing sports or were told to sit on the sidelines and watch the boys play football. Things like this have 
a dual purpose in women, or a dual effect, let's say, in women's subordination. They don't only exclude women from an activity that they might rather like to participate in, but they also deny opportunities for bodily expression. If you can't play sport and you can't play team sports, you're less able to build relationships with others. If you're not able to be physical with another, another person, if you're not able to, to play sort of physical contact sport, it becomes quite difficult to build some of that awareness. Um, and some of the girls I spoke to articulated a real resentment that the boys had this opportunity and they didn't and they saw them play, play football in a team and they didn't have this opportunity to build that kind of interaction, which I found myself very interesting. Um, again, it's associated with the shaming of women's bodies. So when girls, especially younger girls, um, described attempting to participate in those sporting events, they'd be told not to, that they shouldn't play with the boys, that that they might, if, if the boy was on the floor and they stepped over him, that they might sort of undermine his power, that it wasn't a, a way that they should behave. So again, there was this restricting and this shaming associated with the ways that, that women positioned themselves. And finally, through education, the practices of silencing and restricting knowledge, which again has already been highlighted today, um, a lot of, as I'm sure we all know here, Myanmar's education system, has been based on a rote learning system. So it's been based around repetition, around the denial of questioning. Um, so not allowing opportunities to ask questions of your teacher for clarification. This um, has a particular effect on many different identity components. It has an effect on ethnic minorities who may not speak the language of instruction. So they're less able to ask questions for clarification. Uh, less able to ask to informally translate with a, with a peer, for example. Um, so there's a continued subordination sort of pushing down within the hierarchy of ethnic students within this structure of learning. Um, it has a particular effect on disabled students who equally are not able to ask for help. Um, I spoke to a blind student, for example, who would ask her neighbour sitting next to her to, to tell her what the teacher was writing on the board, and they would both receive punishment from the teacher for... Um, talking in class. So it becomes more difficult for disabled students to participate in this environment. And for female students, and of course you get the intersections of all of these as well, um, for female students, this um, lack of opportunity to ask questions was tied with the association that for girls, particularly more than boys, it's, it's seen as less culturally appropriate to ask questions. So. While the disadvantage is there for both male and female students, it really exacerbates an existing problem for female students. So they're less able in all forms, um, in all experiences, to speak out and to voice questions and um, discomfort, which of course has implications later on for girls' ability to articulate um, experiences that they've had that they may not have liked and less able to, to voice those to authority figures uh, because they, they, they feel unable to do so. And the final point there is around restricting knowledge. And again, we've already heard this lack of sex education, which poses real problems. It was something that came out a lot with my research, um, frequently articulated, that the denial of knowledge around sex and around your body, particularly disadvantaged female students, because they didn't have other sources of information, where it was, it was perceived by male students and by female students of their male peers, that they had more opportunities to talk with each other. They talked informally, they exchanged magazines, they learned about sex, but the girls didn't. They didn't have this opportunity and they didn't have this peer network to be able to share this information so easily. So these are some of the, um, the ways in which education can 
be implicated in the reinforcement of these, these structures. I want to move on to just touch upon some of my work which provides an alternative view from community learning environments. And uh, again, some of our participants might recognize some of these pictures because this was from um, this little book here, was a translation of a um, sort of experiences of puberty book uh, that, that Tafa's organization did. It was Tafa uh, that gave me that book. Um, and also our colleague from WLB might recognize the classroom that I was teaching in when I was working with a group of, of her students as well. Um, these kinds of community learning environments present a different model of education. Now, it's important that I say this is perhaps not representative of all forms of community learning. Um, there are, of course, many different informal ways in which people learn, and there are many different forms of community organisations that present information differently. However, one of the things I was doing in my research was working, and my professional work as well, was working with women's-led organisations that were trying to counter some of, explicitly trying to counter some of this learning that came through state schools through an alternative model to create an alternative presentation of women's citizenship. And they used different learning materials. And I think one of the things that particularly came out of my work that I want to highlight um, is that it's not only the content of these learning environments that's different. So, in, as Tata has explained, um, the issue of sex education is, is very important um, to her, to her organisation. Um, also notions like empowerment, so we have a lot of women's empowerment courses. Political empowerment is another one that, that, that I was associated with. So very different forms of um, gendered learning in many ways. But again, kind of coming back to, to the same route of trying to, um, to accentuate uh, and accelerate uh, women's equality. But it's not only the content that's different, it's also the style of learning that's different. And that's, to me, one of the most important um, results of these community learning environments, is that they create spaces for conversation, create spaces for dialogue that was so missing in other formal learning experiences for these students, and create an environment where it's possible to identify and speak out about experiences that perhaps that space was not available previously. So when we're looking at when I'm looking at ways I can learn from um, women's organisations' work, it's not only in the content of what they're delivering, it's also in the style and the way that they're delivering it. Which leads me on to my final slide, so neatly timed, um, around some of the implications of this. As I mentioned before, I was once upon a time a women's empowerment trainer. So for me, one of the important things that uh, my research helps me understand is the ways in which some of us international actors are implicated in these processes, what we can and can't do to help and to contribute. Um, I, this notion of empowerment was one that um, has become so diluted that it's often in academia now dismissed as useless because it's so difficult to identify what it is. It's so um, commonly identified in different ways. There's a, an assumption that it's been somewhat appropriated by development organizations away from its original more feminist roots. It's become so problematic, is what I mean, that there's a tendency amongst some people to say, oh, well, let's, let's not attempt to, to use this anymore. Let's talk about something different. 
What I found with the community learning environments I was working with was that empowerment was frequently used as a term, but it meant very different things. And so to me, understanding what is meant by empowerment for different people was then really a key starting point. So some students would tell me that empowerment was knowledge, but it was knowledge in a really specific way. It was knowledge of what the deep sea port in Douai would do for gender relations. It was knowledge of how mining affects a community and what the environmental impact of that would be so that they could go back to their community and voice that, with that knowledge, voice um, that opposition to, to the deep sea port or to, or to the mining project. That was empowering, having the knowledge and the, the, the confidence of some data to speak from. For other women, it was completely different. It was body awareness. It was a sense of solidarity amongst other women. So it varied hugely. And so instead of rejecting empowerment as a, as a useless term because it has so many meanings, I think perhaps let's look a little closer at what some of those meanings are to different people and how they might be useful. Another, um, I put there sort of, there's opportunity to learn from the women's movement and the way they adapt development contexts. But I also think conversely, there's um, a, a self-examination that needs to do in terms of what some of the material is, is presenting. The organizations I worked with were experts in borrowing from different sources and adapting material. So taking a, a training book, I've, I've written curriculum material, for example, on community development, on uh, women's empowerment, on, on gender relations, taking that material, translating it into their language, and adapting it and creating it into something new. And then also taking from multiple other sources, um, events they participated in or things they got off the internet, really blending all this together. That's brilliant. But when we look at some of the sources, some of the information in there isn't itself a little bit um, uncomfortable. Multiple times I've seen in women's empowerment training ma manuals statements around what is sex and what is gender. Um, and sex is often, and on multiple occasions, was, was stated as sex is determined at birth and cannot be changed. Anybody with a non-normative sexual orientation or a gender identity and expression that is different from what is perceived to be the norm in Myanmar is immediately put outside that definition. So there are ways in which um, sort of out, other ideas really can get reinforced through some of the training material that, that is being used. Um, I think international trainers, including myself, have, have a responsibility there to, to inspect our own material a little closely and to consider our audiences um, a little more closely. Um, and in general, the poor attention to sexual orientation and gender identity expression is, is still something of an issue, um, undoubtedly, within, within international empowerment movements as well as in many community environments, not, not all. 